Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel transmatting back in once again to talk a little bit more science fiction with you. Uh, we are picking up from our last episode, Sci-Phylum Part 1. Uh, and we're going we're going in right now into Sci-Phylum Part 2 as we, di- as we discuss the sci-fi subgenres. In the previous episode, we went through, I, as I called them, the... The second, uh, the second and third tier subgenres of of sci-fi, and uh, I felt like it was um, it was worthwhile to save the big four subgenres, the the tier ones, the elite, um, if you will, subgenres of science fiction, uh, right now. And I and I mean that right now in terms of like some of these some of these have like legit staying power, um, but some of them kind of come and go. And I think, and I think. Um, it just it just depends on the on the mood of of pop culture, right? Like it just depends on who's making it and what their mood is. Because one of these, I would I would say that one of these subgenres has really kind of made its way t- into this uh, upper tier, really in just the last like ten to fifteen years, uh, while kind of always kind of being on the periphery, being you know generally maybe a tier two subgenre. It has now worked its way uh, up into the top four, and whereas one of these is, I would say, when we get to it here. One of these, I would say, is probably the top subgenre for um, uh, for science fiction storytelling in across all mediums. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to we're going to jump straight into this. I don't think I have. I mean, there's obviously an order here, but I don't think there's really, like I said, I I, I don't think there's explicitly an order in terms of like popularity necessarily. So we'll just go straight down the list here and talk about. Um, and talk about the remaining four, sub, the big four, the remaining four uh, subgenres uh, that we didn't get to in the last episode. Um, and just as a quick reminder, these four are hard sci-fi, cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic sci-fi, and social science fiction. Um, and just real quickly here, we'll give you a rem- well, you know what? Let's let's just start here. We'll start with hard science fiction, and I'll give you the definition for hard science fiction right before we uh, dive into it. So hard science fiction emphasizes scientific accuracy and explores complex scientific concepts, uh, you know, in physics and biology and technology. Um, anyone writing in this particular category, authors, um, you know, screenwriters, whatever, filmmakers uh, in this category are really trying to make their speculative, speculative ideas plausible, right, within the current, um, within the current framework of science. So we are, we are realism is at the center of hard science fiction that's really what we're going for even if there are some fantastical even if the realism does take us to some to some fantastical places the root concepts um are have to be plausible you know with today's with today's understanding of of how they work so hard science fiction and this is the one i think has really crept up in the last in the last like 10 to 15 years or so as one of the big that has made itself one of the big four subgenres right now and and I think this subgenre has trended so highly recently because of because uh, of a few things. But I think the I think the main thing that has helped prop hard sci-fi up to where it is now is because a lot of the science fiction of old, and you know you could you could call it you know from the fifties onwards, really even you know even some sci-fi concepts from the eighties and nineties um, have become modern science fact, right? Like we're, we're not it's not speculative anymore. To talk about sentient robots and AI, these things are reality. Um, obviously, the um, the versions that we see in um, 
you know, in the news or you might uh, encounter on a, on a daily basis if you're using uh, Claude or um, ChatGPT or whatever. Um, these versions are definitely much more sanitary and a little bit, a little bit dumber than what is really being worked on. But you know, but again, AI and sentient robots are real. They're science fact now. Interplanetary travel. We have a whole. There's a whole graveyard of fucking machines on Mars that we've sent up there. That is something that is science fact now. Um, we have all of these bizarre species that we've discovered. Uh, these exophile uh, or I think they're called exophile species. Like it, that you couldn't exist anywhere else on Earth except for these very extremophiles. Excuse me. Except for these very harsh extreme environments. Um, you know there are life forms that exist on underwater volcanoes that would be that are otherwise completely inhospitable to life, but we've discovered them recently. Um, and you know, so we know that these that these sort of almost alien like creatures that live on Earth uh, exist. Um, just the and just the general advancements in science, um, you know, medical science, social science, like all of this stuff has become science fact. And I and I think that as the as this as this um, sci-fi has become sci-fact, our interest in both the our interest in it has kind of increased as well, um, because it is sort of an it is sort of an everyday thing. Like I said, you can interact with artificial intelligence uh, casually. Um, you can talk to it. You can ask it questions, whatever. Um, so I think that we are we are as as these things become fact, um, as science fiction becomes science fact, we're also just becoming more interested in how they work. You know, and, and how how I can use some of these things or how might some of these things be useful or interesting to me. I think that has really been one of the key factors that has pushed hard sci-fi up to, up to, up the list quite a bit. I also think that we're not as intimidated by advanced scientific tech and concepts, you know, as we used to be. And I don't mean that, like, it's – I don't mean that, like, it's inaccessible or something like that. But, like, you know, I think – Again, because we're sort of inundated with, um, with stuff that it used to be fiction now becoming fact, but also because you can pick up, you know, a regular newspaper now and find an article about some major scientific advancement, and they might even get into some detail about it. You know, it could be quantum computing, it could be, um, you know, it could be artificial intelligence, alien life, something like that. The stuff that used to be sort of confined to scientific journals. Or you know, you know, more more highbrow, if you will, periodicals, um, you know, science mags and, uh, and and nature magazines and and you know, natural science magazines, stuff like that. Those kind of stories have filtered down everywhere. I mean, there are social media accounts that follow that follow the latest advancements in AI or the latest advancements in medical science, right? So like, it's it's so much more accessible, much more visible. That I, I think that we're not as sort of put off or intimidated by the ideas of something like quantum computing, and I think, and I think another thing here, and this is sort of the 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 business aspect of this one, is that Hollywood is trying to mine as much IP from anywhere that they can find it, and I think because I think that we've had this because we've had this sci-fi resurgence on especially like the streaming networks. More and more of these studios are looking for the next sort of the next big um, sci-fi hit, right? Like they're they're trying to find what's going to be the next, um, you know, what's going to be the next breakout. Be it a hard sci-fi show, be it um, you know something more fantasy sci-fi, softer sci-fi, whatever. We're we're just we're looking for more of these, 
And when they become successful, when it's something like Silo or Foundation or, or For All Mankind, which I think are all on Apple, uh, which is kind of interesting that Apple is kind of like the home of of good sci-fi. But because these things become hits, we're now looking for we're now looking deeper into some of these previously unused stories, book series, um, comic strips, whatever that uh, that previously maybe not wouldn't have been um, option. But now we're looking for the next big hit along those lines. So, you know, Hollywood is also driving it is kind of driving it itself. Right. Hollywood is churning its own engine when it comes to um, when it comes to the sci fi resurgence. Now, I do want to talk, before I get into some recommendations here, I do want to talk about a offshoot of hard science fiction itself called Diamond Hard Sci-Fi. And the way that you can think about this, I'll give you like an actual sort of kind of common agreed upon definition, but think about it as even stricter hard sci-fi. So Diamond Hard Sci-Fi is striving for extreme scientific and technological realism, right? Like we are how how accurate can we get our um you know even if it's something very speculative like um you know what a black hole looks like we are still going to try for the most extreme version the extremely accurate version of what a what a black hole would look like um you know think just thinking about something like interstellar which actually based on uh you know collaboration with Christopher Nolan and the and the the science advisors that that view of the of the black hole of the unsigned Rosen bridge that is presented to them is in the event horizon, which I don't want to get into all the aspects of it, but basically that view for that view of the, of the black hole in uh, interstellar is based off of recent calculations and mathematics. Um, and then it's kind of extrapolated um, with modern, with current, um, you know, computer generate CGI technology. So like that was that's like an example of a piece of diamond hard sci-fi in uh, in, a, in a movie would be that black hole. So let's I'll give you some other quick um, sort of characteristics here. Uh, diamond hard sci-fi plots are driven by scientific principles and technology. You'll get a lot of detailed explanations in in a diamond hard sci-fi story. Like re- the the science really is the central part of the story, even at the the cost of potentially you know some kind of drama or other. Or other dressing that you would put in the story. Um, a lot of times you'll find that the laws of physics are strictly adhered to. So like in Diamond Heart, again, another, another uh, that, that the Black Hole Interstellar is a piece of Diamond Heart sci-fi because this was based on current physics models and calculations of what a black hole would look like and what the event horizon would look like. Um, in, uh, in TV shows like The Expanse, there is no faster than light travel because it's not something that exists um, that's not something that can exist according to the current understanding of laws of physics. So a lot of so a lot of these a, a lot of the the technology and stuff or <clears throat> storytelling around the technology has to be based in an extreme extreme real science. Um, th- those are those are basically the most um, you know those are the most important kind of pieces of diamond hard diamond hard sci-fi. You could also kind of talk about how stuff is. You know, again, you get detailed explanation. There's, there's no, you know, if even if they are doing something a little bit fantastical like time travel, they're going to give you a very detailed explanation for how the time travel works, as opposed to kind of just hand waving it as it's modern technology. You know what I mean? That's that's what Diamond Heart Sci-Fi really is striving for. And I think, and I do think that while we get peaks of this from time to time, like I said, the 
the black hole in interstellar is one of the best examples of of a piece of diamond hard sci-fi making its way into a sci-fi film but i i really don't think that we get I, like i don't think you could you could point to that many um that many concrete or how about this how many this that many diamond examples of diamond hard sci-fi in pop culture i think there are a few um i think the martian is a version of diamond hard sci-fi i think gravity is a version of, of diamond hard sci-fi primer is a version i think 2001 you know until like the the last act is is a version of it um but i and i think there's some things that are close i think the expanse has a lot of um diamond hard kind of elements but the storytelling you know we are talking about interdimensional travel and um you know alien uh alien goop uh infecting people and, and turning us into things uh so there's a little bit there that that kind of separates it from from the diamond as from the diamond hard aspect same with gattaca i think there's a few things that kind of separate it um and you know the the last especially the last act of contact um the 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 very fantastical almost religious sort of um element at the end of contact kind of keeps it maybe a couple steps away from being diamond hard i think at this point this particular um sub this sub sub genre this offshoot genre is really more for books at this point and i'm not really sure that it could ever really become uh, a major sort of um potentially its own subgenre apart from hard science fiction i just don't think I don't think the we'll, we'll ever get to that point. I think we'll just always have a, a few peaks at things that kind of emerge from this from this sub subgenre. So, just a couple of recommendations for hard science fiction here. Um, as I mentioned, I'll start with one I just mentioned right there: The Expanse. Um, you know, you get a lot of good science out of it. I mean, they have a you know, what their science advisor on the show is is like an astrophysicist, um, you know, giving them, giving them, uh, you know, giving them tips on, uh, especially for the physical, you know, the, the visual production of thing, giving them tips on what stuff could or should look like. And also importantly, you know, where can you bend, um, the laws of physics and, you know, to make the show look interesting. Like, like that, that's an important thing too, when it comes to the science advisor on any kind of hard sci-fi show or, or movie, where are the opportunities to bend the rules just a little bit? And I think they, when they do bend the rules of the, of the expanse, they bend them the right way. Uh, one that is, I'm recommending this for two reasons, uh, but Person of Interest was a show on CBS that at times was very, very thought-provoking um, in terms of its exploration of artificial intelligence, um, I guess, uh, fate, predetermination, um, you know, uh, but also like, you know, it's it kind of starts pushing its way into into different genres, basically, because of the type of show that it is. Um, but it really wasn't a very interesting rumination, especially on on artificial intelligence, uh, state surveillance uh, even. But also, if nothing else, if nothing else, if person of interest gets you to listen to the QAnon Anonymous podcast episodes about Jim Caviezel. Um, Jim Caviezel is a hard alt-right QAnon conspiracy theorist and his two episodes, the two episodes about him, one is actually about the sound of freedom uh, in which he stars, but the other one is about him, uh, and people's experiences with him called into the Cavortex. Uh, it's, it's some of the funniest, most bizarre shit you'll ever hear 
about someone who is uh, pretty prominent in Hollywood. I mean, the guy did play Jesus after all. Um, but it, it's it's just a fascinating... The show itself, pretty decent. And it's a fascinating... There's a fascinating kind of additional look at, the, at, at its main star, uh, basically. So, person of interest. And then uh, a movie I think is borderline a masterpiece and legitimately underrated. Um, and that's uh, Danny Boyle's Sunshine. Uh, a... Obviously, it, again, it, it does get into some, does violate certain laws of physics and science a little bit for dramatic effect, um, but does adhere to the does adhere to some very uh, some very real scientific concepts and some very real um, some very real situations that would happen uh, if if our sun in fact did start to die, like what you know the effects that would have on planet Earth, and. Um, it also, just all the stuff in space. Once we get, once we get into the central conflict uh, and, and the the second ship in space, um, that movie just it, it fucking it's mind blowing. It's it's a borderline masterpiece, very underrated. A movie I have I haven't seen in quite a while. I, I definitely need to revisit. But that is Danny Boyle's Sunshine. All right, so let's hop into our next genre, and we are going to talk a little cyberpunk. Um, so cyberpunk is known for its gritty dystopian settings, advanced technology, and the focus of, uh, you know, what happens between, uh, when, when humans and technology become closer and closer, um, in some cases literally fused together. Um, that's, that's cyberpunk. And this is one of the, you know, one of the ones that is a very long standing, consistent genre. Um, this is cyberpunk will probably always be a top four subgenre. And I think, I think what really drives and keeps cyberpunk as a top genre, as a top subgenre, is its aesthetic, right? Like this is, this is the, this is probably other than steampunk, um, cyberpunk is the most visually recognizable subgenre, right? Like you can turn on any movie or any TV show, and you will be able to immediately recognize it. If it's cyberpunk, you'll be able to recognize it from the clothing, you know, lots of leather. We got some sunglasses. Uh, the you know people with some cool tattoos, people with uh, advanced tech literally grafted onto their bodies, or they're or they're wearing it. Whatever um, the the landscape, the buildings that will be covered in technology, the um, you know some of the other stuff that isn't necessarily you know ex- exclusive to cyberpunk, but like the everything being a wash in neon. Um, you know, one of those kind of aesthetic um, cues that, uh, again, not 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 exclusive to cyberpunk, but definitely is um, a very very common in the cyberpunk genre. Um, so it just it it it's such a easily recognizable um, aesthetic, and it offers such a really compelling vision of what future tech and and might you know might look like in the hands of people or literally on people. Um, so I think. I think that aesthetic really, especially when it comes to movies and TV shows, obviously, is such a driver because you can make a very unique visual setting um, when you're telling a story story in the cyberpunk subgenre. I think, and I think so. So there's that. That's the main one. I think the secondary one here is that cynicism and cultural subversion are really at the heart of cyberpunk. And I think that these two themes are resonating with a lot of people right now. 
Um, and really, again, over time, there's always something to sort of rage against, right? But I think, especially right now, there's probably, other than like maybe the 60s and 70s, I, I feel like our distrust in these, like, our distrust in, in institutions and maybe the feeling that there are just these overwhelming, large, oppressive forces everywhere we turn in our lives might be at an all-time high, at least since the 60s or 70s. Um, the government feels like it's, for a lot of people, feels like it is an overwhelming oppressive force, um, both st- both state level and, and federal level and global level uh, government. Um, corporations feel like they have ha- they have more sway in our lives now, possibly than ever at any point in time before in human history. Even our entertainment feels like it's being mandated by larger forces. So I think that this sort of, this feeling that like there are, there is just so many bigger things at play, almost that you, almost that you're being pulled around by your strings a little bit, um, is, is really helping drive, um, I'll call it cultural and cultural cynicism subversion to all time highs and really makes, and really makes these cyberpunk stories appealing because that is usually what our protagonists are anti-heroes are fighting against right they are fighting against these these large forces and using whatever they have whatever means that they have to to fight back and i'll I'll include one more thing here that i think um really helps keep cyberpunk as a uh, as a top genre as a top subgenre excuse me and that's i think this is the only entertainment genre and visual entertainment genre with its own evolving soundtrack like cyberpunk obviously isn't a musical genre, but various types of electronic music since the days of John Carpenter and his synthesizers of the 1970s, all the way up to modern times with Carpenter Brute and his synthesizers have contributed to what would really be the ongoing cyberpunk soundtrack. Um, it has just been synonymous with this sort of edgier um, experimental electronic music. John Carpenter, KMFDM, The Prodigy, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry. Excuse me, I had a cough real quick there. Uh, where was I? Nine Inch Nails, uh, Ministry, Carpenter Brood, as I just mentioned, Aphex Twin. All of these, all of these um, notable names in uh, mostly in electronic music or industrial music are are have been contributing to the ongoing soundtrack of, of cyberpunk. Even some non-cyberpunk artists have um have concept albums or songs and things that could filter in and be considered part of the part of the cyberpunk soundtrack billy idol has an, literally has an album called cyberpunk uh sticks has a uh, has an album that really pushes into the cyberpunk genre rush has a cyberpunk has a cyberpunk uh, album deltron 3030 uh, a modern a more modern rap trio um they they have their songs and, and a lot of their albums are sort of the hip hop version of of cyberpunk. I think you could even include um, I think you'd even include Death Grips as is another sort of hip hop cyberpunk act. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's very fascinating that um, that this that this particular entertainment genre literally has an accompanying soundtrack to it uh, and. I could be wrong, but I think it's maybe. I guess maybe horror movies, um, kind of in general, have sort of a, a similar kind of vibe to them. But you really, you really can. I think more closely, you can kind of uh, ascribe a lot of these artists, and you could call them cyberpunk artists, and it would be accurate. 
All right, so some quick recommendations here. Uh, go see both Blade Runners and any and all versions of the original Blade Runner. Um, there's got to be like five or six of the original Blade Runner versions. Um, but the a very interesting sort of look at the, you know, as we said before, the idea of uh, high-tech, low-life, um, you know, being one of the hallmarks of maybe, you know, one of the hallmarks of cyberpunk, and that is at play big time in Blade Runner. Um, in terms of the aesthetic, uh, and in terms of the aesthetic, I will recommend Dark City. Um, it feels like, it feels like um, it's it's a noir. Um, it's a, kind of like a, an old school noir um, story set in a very, very science fiction city, uh, Dark City. And uh, it, lots of twists and turns, but the aesthetic feels like it's taken straight out of uh, straight out of a Nine Inch Nails video. Um, a lot of the sets actually were um, a lot of the sets for Dark City were actually later used, uh, or you know, not even like months later, were used for uh, The Matrix, uh, which is you know another cyberpunk, uh, maybe maybe the maybe the modern cyberpunk movie um, of all time. But uh, Dark City, uh, definitely should check out Dark City for that cyberpunk aesthetic. And then a more recent movie uh, with Logan Marshall Green called Upgrade. Um, this fun uh, this fun action movie uh, wherein uh, Logan Marshall Green literally physically gets upgraded with tech to become uh, a, a human weapon sought, you know, seeking vengeance uh, for, I believe it's his wife's murder. Uh but kind of really playing off the idea that, um, you know, human, human, uh, humanity and technology are fusing closer and closer together. And in his case, they are literally fusing together as he becomes uh, almost a almost a cyborg, basically, uh, in this movie. And that is Upgrade. So there you go. Blade Runner, both Blade Runners, all versions of Blade Runner, Upgrade and Dark City. All right. Now let's move on to this is move on to the one that I think is the all-time number one subgenre of science fiction. Um, and that is the post-apocalyptic science fiction story. And I, I say that... Oh, let me give you just a quick definition here, but I think you probably know it. Um, explore, post-apocalyptic sci-fi explores, explores worlds. Sometimes it explores worlds, but it definitely explores worlds that have suffered catastrophic events like nuclear wars, pandemics, and environmental disasters. And, uh, you know, then we're going to focus on how society copes and evolves uh, in the aftermath of these events. And I say that this is the number one, um, the number one subgenre because humanity is always worried about the end times and, and what happens if we're, what happens to the world if, you know, if something catastrophic happens and we're amongst the survivors, right? Literally, these are our first, our creation stories, our People surviving a flood, people surviving um, what appears to be uh, an Indian nuclear holocaust. Um, these stories are the literally the first stories we we wrote about ourselves that that some pocket of humanity survived some terrible event and now we're rebuilding. So uh, this is ongoing, and you could find post apocalyptic stories, uh, books, things that that date back even in even in terms of like our. Even in terms of our recent, and I'll call recent, the last 200 years of sci-fi has plenty of stories that take place on an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic Earth. Um, this is just one of those things that is ingrained into our collective consciousness. And I think that it will always be the number one 
um, the number one sort of the number one subgenre in which to write. <clears throat> and I think the reason, so that's the main reason. But I think another reason why is the world is always changing and progressing in some way, shape, or form. And I think, and I think to the individual, it feels like it's the the rate of progression and change is just ever increasing. It just feels like it's nonstop. Like things are spinning faster and faster away from away from you. And I think that because it feels like many people feel like their world, the world, or maybe just their world is ending in one in some way or form, uh, you know, some way, shape or form or another. So it might feel kind of empowering to sort of envision yourself as a survivor of the end times, that that might be something that in some way, shape or form might be comforting. I, I don't know. I just I just feel like it's, you know, again, it's. The main thing is that we that humanity is always pondering its end, but I think on the micro level as opposed to that macro level thinking, um, that we're also thinking about how how it feels like the how it feels like society, reality, the earth, whatever, are moving farther away from us, and that is another thing that plays into the popularity of this particular subgenre. And I think I know I've said this in a previous podcast. I just can't remember which one, but. I think in terms of for the creatives, I think this is also one of the easiest settings for storytelling, right? Like it is really easy to tell a a character story, a character study type of story, a character development type of story, a human psychology type of story. It's a lot easier to tell that story when you just strip everything else away but the people, right? Like there is nothing else in the world that is distracting anyone from this. Um, from the from the interaction from the character interactions, um, I also think that just from a practical standpoint, in terms of you know you you're making a movie and maybe you don't have an unlimited budget, well, it's a lot easier to shoot out in the middle of a desert and call it you know call it post apocalyptic Earth, you know after some nuclear holocaust wiped everything off the map. It's a lot easier to to shoot in the desert and shoot in some junkyards and some scrapyards than it is to um, to try to shoot. Uh, you know, whatever the inverse of that would be, I guess, like some, you know, high tech future society, a um, lot cheaper. The desert is cheaper than some speculative, uh, fictional, um, hyper advanced society. So I think you could kind of look at it. I, I don't and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I think you could kind of look at the post apocalyptic setting as a little bit of a creative shortcut. Now, just for some quick recommendations, I'll start with one that I am obsessed with and Boy, I cannot like it's it's going to be a while before we see the second season of this due to the writer strike, um, the actor strike, and uh, Apple's insistence that they're not going to pick up anything with this for quite a while. And that is Silo, um, the based on uh, based on the novels by I can't remember why I'm forgetting this guy's name now, but they're recent novels. Um, so maybe I should go read those in lieu of waiting potentially three years for the second season of Silo, but. Putting us putting us in this very interesting post-apocalyptic future in which uh, humanity is living in a gigantic, essentially a gigantic missile silo, um, and you know you get all the so you get the post-apocalyptic stuff. You also get some um, class struggle and strife. You know, obviously people living on the top levels are a little bit better off than people living at the bottom levels. You know that kind of stuff. But silo, fantastic post-apocalyptic storytelling. And every episode leaves you wanting more, um, legitimately wanting more. Uh, 
Next recommendation here, go check out all of the Mad Maxes. Um, all, George Miller's sig- unique look at what the post-apocalyptic future is going to be like and um, different angles on that post-apocalyptic future. So it's, I think, I, I think, um, I think we have one more, at least one more movie from him coming, the, the Furiosa spinoff, but uh, the original trilogy and then obviously Mad Max Fury Road um, are those four movies, that tetralogy is some of the best post, maybe the best post-apocalyptic filmmaking. Um, it, let's, let's maybe not the best post-apocalyptic collection of films that you can find there. Uh, so watch all the Mad Maxes. And then one of my favorites continues to be one of my favorites, especially in light of, um, what we know now and, and sort of the, the very sad recent demise of Bruce Willis. Um, obviously he's not dead yet, but, um, just, you know, what, you know, his, his disease and, and what it's done to him has been very, very sad to kind of, when you realize what his recent careers looked like, you kind of forget, you kind of forget that he, you kind of forget how compelling of an actor he was. And he is fantastic in 12 monkeys. Um, one of my favorite post-apocalyptic sci-fi movies. Uh, he is fantastic. Brad Pitt is absolutely um, thrilling in his, uh, in his supporting role. The atmosphere that they create, the the unique vision of of this um, of this global pandemic that wipes out humanity is fantastic. Uh, Twelve Monkeys, go see it. So Twelve Monkeys, all the Mad Maxes, and the first season of Silo. Uh, and if I guess if you're like me and probably can't wait for the next season, um, which might be I don't know when I'm like 46, uh, you should probably just go read the books too. All right, and lastly, we will wrap up with social science fiction and a quick definition here for social science fiction delves into societal and political issues through speculative or futuristic settings uh examines how technology and cultural changes impact human behavior impact human institutions impact you know put you know human policy that kind of stuff um i think i think this subgenre again i i think this is probably one of the more consistent ones too in terms of um in terms of its uh, sort of popularity. And I think it's because this subgenre is our most intense mirror into ourselves or spotlight on current events. And, and, and that's been forever, right? Like, you know, even going back to some of the, some of the oldest sci-fi stories um, are uh, even, even before you really could kind of consider them sci-fi are about like current events and, you know, where that might take us. So uh, this is one of the most consistent ones too. It pr- it'll probably always be like a top subgenre. And given recent social events, recent social global upheaval, uh, civil rights, race relations, hate-based violence, police or state-sanctioned violence, um, grievance governing, as I call it, um, there are more opportunities for there's more opportunities for storytelling and for stories that had already been written about some of these uh, about some of these things to find new, new audiences that are dealing with these the ramifications of these events. So I think that I think that social sci-fi is um I think social again social sci-fi will always be like a top genre, but I think it's one that will ebb and flow depending upon um depending upon the the social background. You know, what's going on in the, the societal background, I should say, excuse me. So for example, right now uh, the Handmaid's Tale really has been a, a huge success in the last few years, 
in and that's because you know the wake of the the you know it's it's found new audiences in you know as a tv show and the book um has found audiences now in the wake of the current uh i'll call it the current alt-right revolution that we're going through um same with um you know same with man of the high castle kind of feels very very timely and prescient and, and is finding new audiences um uh, even though it's been off the air for a couple of years now um finding finding new ground simply because of current political times seem to be reflective of this speculative alternate history that um that uh, that the book and the uh, and the the show mostly the show posit uh watchmen has evolved into one of the most important pieces of entertainment um you know as its commentary on racial strife because of the recent racial driven unrest in the US so it it, it just depends right like it, it it again it's this one probably is more more than others subject to the the ebb and flow of what is happening in society. Um, so quick recommendations here. Uh, Star Trek. I would also, in particular, the original series, The Next Generation, and Strange New Worlds. Um, and I'm recommending those, those because those are the ones that you get the the sort of, the classic Star Trek episodes where you, you get like the courtroom episodes, right? Where we're literally, in some cases, it's literally a court where we're going to decide over the, um, uh, you know, in, in the next generation, there's literally a, a hearing in which data has to, um, data has to prove that he's a sentient being and not Starfleet property. In uh, the most recent uh, season of strange new worlds, uh, one of our, one of our main cast members has to prove that despite their, their existence being going against uh, Starfleet guidelines, that, they are that they are worth uh, still worth inclusion in Starfleet and, and fit to serve despite uh, despite their augmentations being uh, otherwise illegal. Um, and that's to me that's when Star Trek's at its best when it's exploring these sort of these social issues and these civil rights issues um, in a in a sci-fi sort of lens. So Star Trek legitimately watch all of them. I love them all. But in particular, Strange New Worlds, The Next Generation, and the original series. Uh, how about a, a show that I feel like it's a little bit of a bad rap, but I understand um, why it gets a bad rap. It's definitely not for everyone, but Westworld. Um, exploring the exploring the um, exploring the ideas of what it actually means to be a sentient being, and why and you know and explores human behaviors and sort of the the way that humans behave when it feels like the way humans behave when it feels like they're not being watched i guess even though they are even though uh westworld also gets into uh delves into surveillance issues and things like that but you know how how do people treat um these beings that are otherwise they're kind of told are just objects for their pleasure um literal pleasure or sometimes uh, much more nefarious things, but it turns out also that they're they're sentient as well. Um, so Westworld dives into that sort of like what is what defines humanity, what defines life, what defines sentience, um, and you know it does it all with a nice sci-fi western veneer as well. Uh, and you're also going to see some of the best, um, some of the most in terms of a television show, some of the best um, scenery and, and visualizations you'll. You'll, you'll find anywhere on TV. Uh, so that's Westworld. Not really sure where you can watch it at this point. However, 
uh, since it's been t- taken off of HBO Max. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it's on Tubi or something else. Uh, and then lastly, uh, a little bit, um, a little bit outside the box here, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the movie Her, in which uh, Joaquin Phoenix is uh, falling in love with his AI assistant, uh, who is voiced by Scarlett Johansson, and really kind of gets into the meat of what, of how our relationship with technology and artificial intelligence, how how it's going to rapidly change. And maybe has already rapidly changed and what those ramifications will be like. You know, maybe it's not as extreme as someone falling in love with their AI voice assistant. But who's to say, excuse me, who's to say that we don't, that people don't have artificial friends in the future, right? We're already, we've already moved into kind of a phase where um, social media kind of gives you access to people without giving you access to people. So we're we're almost a step away from then those people just being replaced by, um, by real life sounding AI that that you can talk to, right? I think that this is a very one of the most interesting, um, one of the most interesting uh, sort of speculative futures, uh, you know, since it isn't since it isn't filled with dazzling technology necessarily, but it is about but it does focus in on the the human relationship to technology in a very very interesting way. So that's uh, Star Trek, Westworld, and the movie Her. And that's it. This is a true mini so That does it for this particular episode of The Occasionalists, our second part of the Sci-Phylum episodes. Uh, stay tuned. Next week we will uh, we'll be getting back with uh, a couple of movie reviews. I haven't selected the movies yet, but I think I'm going to try to watch something uh, something modern and something, uh, something from the, the 1940s or 50s. Um, to kind of give, because uh, you know, I, I still want to get into the the origins of sci-fi in in movies and how a lot of the earliest, a lot of the earliest, most interesting and like well thought of movies are were sci-fi, and uh, yeah, so so I think so I think I'm gonna move to watch something uh, you know from that era, depending uh, you know we'll see exactly what you know whether I want to get into something pulpier or something a little bit more a um, little bit headier. And then obviously, like I said, I'm going to watch something a little bit more modern. Uh, but that'll be next week. Uh, but for now, thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you next time on The Occasionalists.